Welcome to the Silk Road Mountain Race Podcast, a 12-part series covering an epic new bikepacking race through the remote mountains of Kyrgyzstan. I'm Lucy Cahoon, and in the course of the series, you'll be hearing all about the race and the riders, as well as learning a bit about this spectacular part of Central Asia. I hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to the Silk Road Mountain Race podcast with me, Lucy Cahoon. Welcome to episode three. It's now just a few days before the race gets underway and everybody is nervously excited, checking their last minute preparations, seeing just how much they need or can get away with on their bike and generally hoping that they're prepared for what will turn out to be the adventure of a lifetime. First up, before we dive into the interviews, I've got a confession to make. It turns out, despite my geographical uh, preparation, I myself got my stands muddled up when talking to one of our previous guests, Lee Craigie, and in fact had mistakenly uh, said that she was correct in Turkmenistan being one of the countries that borders Kyrgyzstan. It's not. Uh, that is Tajikistan. It does get very confusing. Uh, so apologies to everybody for my complete uh, geographical ignorance on that point, And I promise to do better in future. Now, straight on to our interviews. Today, we are hearing from a range of people um, as to their involvement in the race. First of all, we go to our race sponsor of the podcast, Shan Cycles, a UK-based manufacturer who are also putting one of their staff in to enter the race. Uh, we also hear from Jeff Liu, a Shanghai-based cyclist and manufacturer. He is the co-founder of the Silk Road Mountain Race and talks to us a little bit about why he got involved and what inspired him to do it in Kyrgyzstan. And lastly, we hear from one of the riders, Jay Peterveri. He's an Idaho-based endurance cyclist with a great attitude, very zen approach to riding, to competition and to life in general. So pretty mixed bag. Um, hope you enjoy listening to all of them. And don't forget to download the podcast and do please leave us a review or a rating. That would be fantastic. Meanwhile, sit back and enjoy episode three. Now I'm joined in the studio by Russell Stout uh, of Shan Cycles, one of the headline sponsors of the Silk Road Mountain Race. Russell, hello. Good evening and thanks for inviting me. <laughs> to be honest, you didn't really have far to come, did you, Russell? No, I've travelled all the, the way from the kitchen <laughs> to be here tonight. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you making the effort. Mm. Uh, we should probably um, confess at this point that uh, we do live together. Uh, and so, yeah, this is um, going to be quite an interesting interview. It's, it's a very civilised interview, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got my beer, so I'm quite happy. Yeah, beer and wine, uh, and um, yeah, in the studio, which is really just uh, the little study next next door. So, Shan Cycles, tell us what it is and how long ago you started. Yeah, well, Shan Cycles, uh, we started uh, back in 2010. Myself and Stephen Shand joined forces to create a range of production bikes made here in the UK. Prior to that, Stephen had been doing custom frames and a bit of a long story, but we got together and we had similar ideas about the types of bikes that we'd like to make. And we basically started making bikes here in the UK. So that was six years ago, did you say? Uh, I guess it's just over seven years, right. seven, eight years now. And what kind of bikes do you specialise in? 
Well, when we started back in 2010, both Stephen and myself had that were a fan of sort of off-road to drop bar bikes, cross bike type things. Um, I suppose touring bikes, but touring bikes maybe weren't that weren't really a thing. weren't cool back then, you right, might say. Okay. So uh, there's quite a lot going on with Team Sky, um, the Olympics at the time. So the sort of sports race. Uh, proper race bikes uh-huh. were quite a big thing and you know touring bikes had very much taken a back seat and um, were a bit dated maybe perceptions of the 1980s with plus fours and flat caps and all that type of stuff <laughs> so yeah we despite that decided to to make uh, bikes in that kind of space because there mm-hmm. wasn't many people doing it there wasn't many nice bikes in that space around um disc brakes weren't really a thing then on road bikes so yeah, there wasn't the, the amount of componentry around that there is now uh, and compatibility. So to get a disc brake road bike was, was an unusual thing at that point in time. Um, and it was a bit of a challenge to, to make bikes like that. Mm-hmm. Also roll-off bikes. There's not many roll-off bikes being made in the UK. There's no, I suppose, low-volume manufacturer of roll-off uh, internal gear hub builds. So that's a bit unique to right. us. Maybe 60% of our sales are roll-off bikes. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, which is maybe surprising to people. Yeah, so... And and have you seen then, since starting the company, have you noticed a significant increase in endurance cycling? Yeah, I mean, things have definitely changed over the time. I think that's... A lot of people got into the sports cycling, so there's been like a huge boom in cycling. Uh Uh, Maybe people going out and buying their Formula One race bike, doing their sporties and all that type of stuff. Then realizing maybe after a few years that um, there's there's a bit more to cycling than that, you mm-hmm, know, maybe mm-hmm. starting to do multi-day type rides or just longer rides. Yeah, so then and, comfort comes more into play, presumably. Yeah, exactly, and um, you know, being able to fit yeah bigger tires, for example, mm-hmm. for more comfort, or or deciding to explore less well-trodden roads, you know, yeah. which are a bit rougher and maybe not so great for. Your twenty-three mil road tired, yeah. and bike packing itself. I mean, that was an expression I hadn't heard until about two, three years ago. So is that that seems to be very cool at the moment. <laughs> Has that been around for years and just given a new name? Or um, yeah, I mean, bike packing's been around in, in one way, shape, or form for a while. You know, as long as people have wanted to carry something on their mm-hmm, bikes. Mm-hmm. You know, you could argue that lashing a Tesco's shopping bag to your bike is <laughs> is bike packing. Uh, but essentially, it's touring. I think. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, it came about very much from people doing mountain biking off road and it not being a very practical thing to be able to fit panniers. So people right. have devised ways of attaching luggage to their bikes uh, for off road riding. But I suppose in the last few years, it's gone very much beyond that, mm-hmm. where instead of doing, having a touring bike for road that might have panniers uh, for carrying luggage, you know, bike packing bags work nicely for that. They're reasonably lightweight. You could argue that aerodynamic, the weight's distributed a bit more sensibly on the bike. So better than a sidecar then? <laughs> better than a sidecar. <laughs> Or trailer. Although, saying that, trailers, you know, I think trailers might be the next big thing. Oh, excellent. (laughs) Somewhere to put the dogs. Yeah, somewhere to put the dogs, yeah. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the main point of difference then. Why would would people choose a Shand as opposed to one of the myriad other brands that's out there? Yeah, I guess the main main difference with Shand is that uh, the bikes are all built to order. We've got a range of different designs for use on and off-road and people can come to us with their particular requirements based around the types of bikes that we make and we can make the bike that's perfect for them, whether it be fit or whether it be the componentry that they want to use. All our bikes are made from steel, which is perfect for uh, touring bikes, bikes, Uh sports touring bikes. So not too heavy? 
No, their modern steel is uh, very different from what you might think of touring bikes in the right. past. Um, makes for a very comfortable all-day bike. Very, uh, I suppose, robust, reliable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a bit, bit like yourself, robust and reliable. <laughs> <laughs> Not so sure about that. <laughs> Um, so explain how you came to be involved in sponsoring the Silk Road Mountain Race. Um, that's a good question and um, it's a bit hard, <laughs> hard to remember exactly how it came about but met Nelson last year at Eurobike. I can't quite remember the circumstances but uh, was aware of the event. I think he'd already announced the event which uh, at that point in time it was just you know seeing what he had planned. Mm-hmm. It just looked amazing. It was just like wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That <laughs> just looks such a good thing. Uh, so I think we got we got chatting over a coffee at Eurobike. It seems like a good event to support. You know, it fits with the types of bikes that we make and our types of customers. Mm-hmm. And we have a wide range of customers from people that are going off doing crazy, really hardcore stuff to people that just want a really nice bike for commuting. And yeah, it seemed, it seemed to fit with the, the type of stuff that we make and, and the type of riding that we like to do as well. Brilliant. And so your sponsorship, what, what form does that take then? Um, this very podcast that you're listening to just now. So essentially, you're you're helping fund my trip to Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Thanks very much, Russell. <laughs> and, and all the technical backup and stuff and logistics that goes with it, I believe. Fantastic. Well, it's money well spent. Mm-hmm. We should also say that um, you have decided to not just sponsor the race, but um, do the race. Uh, that's right. I'm not quite sure how that's come about, but <laughs> <laughs> it has. Um, I think when, when the race was announced last year, um, I personally thought, wow, that's amazing. I would love to do that. I think last year, the tail end of last year, uh, I had other plans. And originally, I'm going to be 50 next year. So I had <laughs> said to myself that uh, I'd always wanted to do the, the two divide mm-hmm. before I was 50. Mm-hmm. And so that was the plan for this year. Plan was all going great until <laughs> I got injured at the tail end of March with a, with a back problem. Right. So that kind of put me back a wee bit and that combined with other commitments meant, I suppose, four or five weeks before the start, just had to shelve it basically. Uh-huh. So so that was that. And then I guess um, chatting to Nelson and yourself <laughs> with what's <laughs> been going on with the race. Did um, you have race envy because I was talking about it? Yeah, well, I think I think it was like it was something I hadn't really looked at in great detail, other than wow, it looks like an amazing adventure out uh, in Central Asia. You know, it's mountains and deserts, all the kind of stuff. Yeah, just I think I think the seed was planted, and you know, I've done a whole bunch of training, feel reasonably fit, mm-hmm. and no outlet for it really. So great. Um, yeah, so you're all geared up and ready to go. Uh, I don't know about geared up and ready to go, but there was an opportunity, so. <laughs> um, to, <laughs> To take part, so yeah. Okay, so the obvious question is: you're a bike maker and you're about to do a bike race, which um, you know is quite a, a nice, advantageous position to be in. It's a uh, luxury. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Tell us about your bike. Yeah, well, the bike is. Um, I say it's semi-custom. It, it is very much based around uh, the bikes that we currently make. So it's essentially a steel hardtail with a rigid carbon fork um, with drop bars. Um, I suppose the main difference it might be to similar bikes is that it's got a roll-off gear hub maybe 60 percent of the bikes that we make are roll-off bikes we've got a bit of a, a specialism right and um, so why did you opt for that then it's basically i think <laughs> maintenance free and it's a fairly robust drivetrain basically so we, mm-hmm. we people that don't know the roll-off gear hub speed hub is uh, an internal gear hub so it's got no external moving parts and um, so there's no 
maintenance or lubrication that's required. Uh-huh. We tie it, uh, combine it with a, a Gates carbon belt drive, so it doesn't even have a chain. Um, so there's, there's just n- not an awful lot to go wrong, really. Yeah, so, so nothing can get stuck or broken or damaged. Or... Yeah, not not to the same extent as it might with a, a derailleur mm-hmm. setup. Mm-hmm. So that it's the bike I'd plan to use for the Tour Divide, but I think okay. it equally is a good bike for taking out to Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. I think more so in that there, there are no bike shops, there's nowhere to get spares yeah, yeah, yeah. or anything like that. You know, wanted to go reasonably lightweight and don't want to carry too much mm-hmm. uh, additional gear. So yeah, there, there's not an awful lot to carry. You don't even need to take lubrication or cleaning equipment. Wow. So you're not taking any spares. What happens if that itself breaks or is that just a um, so unlikely? I won't break. Right, um, okay. Just you. Just me. <laughs> I might be a little bit broken <laughs> at the end of it, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and the belt itself, um, I'm debating how to take a spare belt. It doesn't right. weigh very much. Uh-huh. But I think for the distance that it is, it's under 2,000 kilometres, the belt should be absolutely fine. So um, I'm prepared to take that risk, basically, yeah. Great. And you are also providing a bike for one of the other riders, Lee Craigie, who's uh, also on the program a very well-known Scottish rider and internationally renowned so tell us is your bike similar to hers? It, it is uh, it's a slightly different setup in that Lee likes to ride uh, a mountain bike with flat bars right um, and she has uh, Jones loop bars uh, I've no idea what her. they are yeah <laughs> it, it, it's just a just a very comfortable flat bar setup which Lee likes to ride for for long distance off-road work and I prefer very much a fan of drop bars Mm -hmm. so that's the main difference and uh, Lee would frown upon the 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 true athlete racer (laughs) within there would frown at a a roll-off gear hub oh so uh, you're cheating eh? Uh, no, I think she, she would view it as a, uh, the extra weight that it, that it has as an encumbrance, whereas I view it as potential of not losing half a day due to a mechanic. Right, okay, um, okay. But, yeah, that's assuming that you would have a, a mechanical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she, she has a similar, a similar type bike, uh, but perhaps a, a bit more of a racier setup. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And what's your association with Lee like then? What shape has that taken and how long has it been going? Um, I think that the shape that takes is we make bikes for Lee and Lee and, well, for Lee and her associates in the uh, Adventure Syndicate. Mm -hmm. And basically they take our bikes and beat the shit out of them. (laughs) Excellent. Sounds like a great (laughs) partnership. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really good to see your bikes poop through the ringer and uh-huh. um yeah some, sometimes you can wince uh, at, at the state of things <laughs> but, uh, but it's it's all good because that, that's what i meant what about uh, all your beautiful use. hand painting yeah well <laughs> uh, the great thing about steel bikes is you can strip them down and you can repaint them and they look like new again excellent yeah <laughs> <laughs> does everybody at shan do extreme adventures like you um, yeah, I think I think everybody's into their their own thing. Um, uh-huh. I think we're very much yeah, it's a mi- mixed bag of individuals. You know, from I think cyclocross to touring to uh, road crits to <laughs> single speed Audax to mountain wow. biking. Yeah, it's it's there's a real mixed bag of people who love their cycling. So I guess they're a self selected group who've come to work with you. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird how how uh, Shand has attracted attracted the people that we've got. Yeah. Uh-huh. Brilliant. If you spend all day making bikes and thinking about bikes and selling bikes, does that in any way detract from the enjoyment you have of actually riding a bike? 
Um, uh, sometimes, you know, you could, you could sometimes argue that um, you know, just just like work in general, it, it can get in the way of um, your sporting activities. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, I think we've got a pretty good balance. So, yeah, no, we're a, a, a pretty good place. Because some people say that if you make your hobby your job, it takes all the joy out of it. Um, I thought I thought it was the opposite. Actually, I think it's like if if you do stuff that you enjoy, you'll you'll never oh, okay. work a day in your life. And I, I think that's very much uh, like that for us at Chand. You know, it's you know, I was just looking at two bikes today that we were finishing off the builds for, and they're just they look amazing. They just look like fantastic bikes that you just want to jump on and ride. Mm-hmm. And another email from a customer today who had bought a frame off us and had done the build himself and sent some pictures through and it was just like, wow, that's mm. a really nice bike, you know, and his interpretation of, of how you might build a shed. Fantastic. And, and yeah, no, it's great. And it's just, it's so good to see customers come in or, or send us uh, messages of mm-hmm. what they're up to or seeing posts tagged with us on Instagram of, of the type of cycling that they're doing from different parts of the world. Wow. And, and it's great. It's just, yeah, gives you a real thrill. So where's the furthest away place that you've had a customer? Uh, probably Australia. Wow. New Zealand, yeah. Crikey. Fantastic. Um, tell us what you're most apprehensive about, about taking part in the Silk Road Mountain <laughs> Race, given that it wasn't even your A race. Yeah. Uh, I think, well, I think in some ways, some of the, the things that are really attractive are, are the things that are make it really challenging. In what way? So I think the altitude is, is going to be a real challenge just mm-hmm. because of the average height and some of the, the passes that we're going over. And I'm probably not going to have time to acclimatize beforehand unless I can figure out <laughs> some way way of doing it. So that, that's going to be... Tell me know, about the um, tent idea. Uh, we'll not go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's, so there's the altitude. I think the remoteness of the location as well. I think the resupply is going to be quite a challenge. And yeah, not, not quite knowing what we might find when we get out there and, and that goes for everybody mm-hmm, all, mm-hmm. all the racers trying to work out whether i can find fermented yaks milk here, <laughs> here in scotland to, <laughs> to practice to training on <laughs> but uh yeah no so so i think that's, that's for me that that's the two main things actually is uh-huh. the uh, the resupply and uh the altitude yeah. so the distance and the climb is a walk in the park it's just it's just uh, I'm not, I'm not Incidental. Sure, sure about that, but it's just all part of riding a bike, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, and lastly, Russell, we've got a, a quick fire question for you. Quick fire quiz. Uh-oh. Yep. <laughs> uh, fingers on the buzzers. Name the four countries that border Kyrgyzstan. Oh, darn. I know, I know this as well. Um, Tajikistan. Um, China. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all that is I'll give you a clue. It's two more stands. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I've had uh, Uz- Uzbekistan uh-huh. and, Ka- and uh, <sighs> Kazakhstan. Yes. So nearly there. You've got three out of four. Well, I'll give yeah. you that. Yeah, okay, next question. Uh, what <clears throat> is the name of the fermented yak's milk? I have absolutely no idea. Right. Uh, you'll you'll be very familiar with it by the end. <laughs> so I'll ask that question in about uh, ooh, 10 weeks' time. All right. I shall look that one up then. Okay, yeah. and lastly, where does the race finish, Russell? <laughs> Do you know? Absolutely no idea. In my route planning, I haven't even got to that point yet. Excellent. Uh, here's a classic example of how not to prepare for um, an epic endurance ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think all the, all the place names are going to be a bit difficult to pronounce. Are you brushing up on your Cyrillic script? <laughs> yeah, something like that. 
Excellent. Russell, uh, it's been very informative. Uh, I'll leave you to the rest of your beer. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> look forward to meeting everybody else that might be listening to this uh, out in Kyrgyzstan. Fantastic. Thank you. All Cheers. right. Bye. I'm now joined by Nelson's partner in crime and fellow founder of the Silk Road Mountain Race, Jeff Liu. Jeff's joining us from Shanghai. So thanks very much for taking time and good afternoon. Thanks, Lucy, for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and how whether you and Nelson both came up with the idea um, and what the impetus was for putting on such a challenging race. I think um, Nelson had already spoken to you about how he had cycled from Shanghai back to Paris. And so um, I was meant to join him on that trip, but I don't think I was one of the persons that uh, had a girlfriend that wouldn't allow him to do that. But I, yeah, we we had planned on doing a long cycle together. And when he arrived back in Paris and then came back to Shanghai again, uh, we decided that we would sign up for this ultra endurance race called the Transcontinental. And then it kind of grew from, um, so we did, that race three times together. And then over the summer last year, he decided that he kind of would like to organize one himself. And uh, he thought that Kyrgyzstan would be the best place to do it. So I joined him on the initial scouting trip after he had spent a couple of months there. Now we have the Silk Road. Fantastic. Right. Okay. So were you familiar with Kyrgyzstan before that scouting trip? No, I had never had any interest in Central Asia, to be honest. I, it never occurred to me to even travel there. Really? Yeah, I, I've, I've been living in Asia for about nine years now, and I've traveled around, all around here. And I've been further west in China to like uh, Xinjiang and like Tibet, but Kyrgyzstan just never popped on the map for me. So what were your impressions? It's an, it's an amazingly beautiful country. Basically, everything that Nelson told me previously about it um, was pretty much uh, exactly as he described it. Um, it's beautiful mountainscapes, lots of beautiful streams. The the riding there is amazing. You don't have to worry about like vehicle traffic and uh, yeah, all that. So since doing the original scouting, how long has it taken you to put together the race? Since the original scouting, we kind of came back uh, with all the photos and all the, the GPS tracks that we had recorded. And we looked at many different variants to, to kind of kind of get the perfect route together for the first year. So we've been pretty much working on it up until, I mean, on the, ra- on the route, definitely up until like even recently, like last month. But we're still doing little things to, to kind of uh, prepare for the race that's happening on the 18th now. And have you organized races of similar magnitude before, or is this your first one? I haven't organized this style of race before, but uh, in Shanghai, I was organizing, um, I have a a bike shop here in Shanghai, it's called Factory 5, and um, we used to run events in Shanghai, and we were having alley cat races, so we did one. Describe a little bit what, what that is. So an alley cat race, I guess, is, I guess, almost like what Silk Road would be on a smaller city scale. So much more checkpoints, but you basically have a start and an end, usually the same location in a city. And then you have maybe 20 different checkpoints throughout the city that you have to go to um, in whichever order that you choose. Um, Okay, like a kind of treasure hunt on two wheels. Exactly. And the last year that we were able to put this on was in 2007, uh, 2015. No, no, it's way earlier than that, actually. 2013, I think, was the last one. And we had about 800 people attend that one, so... So in terms of scale, it was much. I've organized larger events than this, but uh, Silk Road is definitely the most difficult one that we've had to do. 
And realistically, then, given how long it takes to prepare, do you think it makes subsequent races easier or will you need sort of two years between each race? I've spoken to Nelson a little bit about plans for the future, but what's your take on that? Right now, it's we have well, we both have full time jobs, and I'm kind of thinking that the commitment is quite long for this first year, which was okay. But in subsequent years, I don't think the we'll have to change it too much. We've basically laid a good foundation, um, and it's just uh, scaling up, um, getting more riders, um, finding a little bit better locations, maybe having some more setup done so that we could have some cooler areas to access. I know that he had touched a little bit on about doing like a suspension bridges and zip lines and things like that so i mean we we definitely have these these ideas that we want to want to do in the future and i i think i think that for now what one year would be every year would be okay with me i i read a little bit about your factory five um you hand make aluminium and steel frames in shanghai is that right yes and why are you focusing mainly on fixed gear cycling and how does that or does it translate to um, bike packing at all I guess, um, well, fixed gear is a very niche market, just like I guess bike packing is now. It just so happened that we we got I got into cycling in Shanghai through the fixed gear community. Kind of started it more as like a bicycle club with a bunch of friends, and then eventually moved into like a being a full time job. So, do many people on on fixed gear? I mean, what, surely it would be impossible to do anything significantly long, wouldn't it? Or or do people are trying people trying to push those boundaries as well? And in 2015, uh, the first time I did uh, the transcontinental race, there was a Parisian messenger who finished the TCR. Actually, he did it, I think, in top 10 position or very close to top 10 on a fixed gear. Yeah. Gee, that's insane. So that, that race, I remember, was about 4,300 kilometers. People are just pushing the boundaries all the time of what's possible, not just in terms of distance and endurance, but the just making things as hard as they possibly can. Um, I'm actually curious. If, I'm, I haven't been following the, the thread too much, but there could be some people that are riding the Silk Road single speed. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's it's. I know that it happens in the other um, bikepacking events, like in the US, like the Tour Divide. There are a few people who ride single speed. So I'm not sure if, if anybody has uh, decided to do that this time. Wow. So tell us your role in particular then. So you're still in Shanghai at the moment. When are you going out to Bishkek and what's your role going to be for the duration of the race? Um, I've been in Shanghai mostly this this year um, helping Nelson uh, do a lot of the, the website stuff and setting up like um, the documents and basically doing some proofreading and just like going over the, the general overall look of the race. Um, I'll be heading out there to Bishkek on the 16th. I arrive in the morning. And then the race starts on the 18th, and then we're. I want to be in one of the sport cars, driving. I think one photographer around, and possibly a video crew. So you're doing a balance between. Obviously, the support cars are not going to give any support um, to individual riders. But how how far away will you be from the riders? So how do you strike that balance between taking good shots, but not um, getting in the way either from a safety point of view or from a sort of um, intrusive point of view. We've been thinking a lot about this, and I think because the roads are gravel, it's not like you can ride next to a person and kind of shoot from outside of the vehicle. So I imagine we'll pick different points in during the race where they're like particularly scenic. I guess a good back backdrop uh, somewhere along the lake. We'll probably like station ourselves at one of the checkpoints, control points um, for a few days and try to get footage and 
um, writer interviews, you know, based on um, it, when people come in, but uh, try not to harass people too much. And I guess this might be a strange analogy, but um, do you think, given that you're not allowed to give support, um, when you watch nature documentaries and, and there's a big ethical debate between photographers watching, say, animals in distress, but knowing that's the natural environment, do you have you thought about how difficult it might be if you see a rider in discomfort or, or who your natural instinct would be to help, but the rules say that you're not allowed to offer them assistance? From my experience with previous races, I think the riders, we, we, will, we will let them know that they can ask for help if we are around. But as a competitor in the race, they will will ask them in return to give us their brevet card, kind of just like an exchange to let them know that they're out of um, qualifications for standing. But I, I'll definitely we'll definitely use our judgment, and if we see somebody like definitely you know not not supposed to be riding, then we will you know step in. That's kind that's sort of sort of like a case by case basis, um, and uh, I'm I'm more than happy to kind of coerce somebody into being like, hey, just uh, why don't you stop for you know, a couple hours and just sleep it off and see how it are in a few, but uh, rather than let them continue, continue on dangerously. But, but I don't think this kind of rider interaction will be too much since it's, they're so spread out that I doubt that um, we'll be able to monitor riders like this in this way, where it's definitely one of the most remote places I've ever been in my life. So hopefully the riders get to experience that for themselves as well. So just to finish off, are there any kind of words of encouragement you'd like to offer to people uh, lining up a week on Saturday? Well, you know, uh, kind of it's a famous quote from Mike Hall, but at the end of the day, you're just riding bikes. So kind of don't take it anywhere beyond that. We're all just uh, out there to have fun. And that's the number one priority for, for me, at least, and for everybody else. I hope so, too. Fantastic. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time and uh, look forward to seeing you in Bishkek in a few days time. Look forward to meeting you, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm joined now by what I can only describe as a, a mad and inspirational legend of a bike rider, uh, Jay Peterveri, who will be taking part in the mountain race uh, coming from Idaho in America. Jay, hello and thanks for joining us. Oh, hello to you, Lucy, and uh, thanks for having me. So uh, you're in Idaho, which I just had a little look on Google, and it is described as a mountainous landscape with vast swathes of protected wilderness and outdoor recreation areas. It sounds ideal. Yeah, it's a, it's a certainly a special spot in America. Just uh, We're surrounded by the Grand Tetons and uh, just outside of Yellowstone National Park. So yeah, just as described very well. And I also, uh, it's 6,200 feet in elevation. So uh, I feel I'm at a good elevation to train for an event such as uh, Silk Road Mountain Race. Fantastic. Yeah, because I know the altitude is something which, which does worry some people. Um, I've had a little look... Uh, at your achievements, which are mind-boggling. I mean, I'm used to dealing with and getting to know endurance athletes, but you have just pushed it to a whole other level. Um, my mind's spinning from the amount of things you've done, but it's impossible to summarize. You've done the Editorod uh, 10 times, the Tour Divide six times, Transamerica. You live for the bike, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I've been a long distance athlete actually since uh, about 23 years of age. I'm 46 right now. So well over 20 years of uh, multi-day adventuring. Um, I come from a multi-sport background and so that was a team effort uh, with other sports. 
Uh, I did that for about 10 years. And then when I left it, I just got back on the bike as I always do. And I've been pursuing long distance cycling for over 15 years, strictly long distance cycling for over 15 years. And I've been uh, bike packing strictly for since about 2006. I discovered bikepacking in 2006 and that is really a passion of mine that I just kind of haven't stopped pursuing. Wow. Um, I'm amazed you have time to fit in a job, but your job also involves bikes. Am I right? Yeah, I uh, I live, eat, drink bikes. Um, <laughs> it's hard to describe when people ask me what I do for a job, but my job is the bike. And basically, yeah, I, I guess I can say I'm an athlete, but I kind of hesitate in saying that. Uh, I consider myself more as an ambassador of sport in the uh, categories of adventure and bikepacking and and on snow and gravel riding. So I work with brands and give a lot of feedback. Uh, I try to deliver content. I try to inspire and teach others, dabble in with some camps. I also put on three events, uh, personal events a year. So everything I do has to do with the bike. And I also, you know, I compete a lot still. So how I fit it all in, I really don't know. Um, But I kind of just do it all. (laughs) And your wife is still talking to you. My wife still talks to me. Thank God she's also an adventurer and uh, understands the lifestyle. And it just, I call it lifestyle. I don't really call it a, a job. We've gotten into sport together. Tracy actually holds a full-time job as well, but this actually turned into my job. And so I'm super fortunate with the position I'm in. I'm super fortunate to have an understanding wife and for the supporters I have. So it's kind of been an amazing ride, no pun intended. <laughs> and what particularly appeals to you? Uh, you? You've mentioned that you were in team sport before. Do you think the solitude and the sort of self-discovery that comes with endurance is something that keeps you going back? Yeah, I love, you know, I always, I often say like I compete against myself. I competed against uh, the route, the terrain, the clock. It's not me against somebody else. It's it's me wanting to learn more about myself. Um, it's the reason why I push things the way I do. It's the reason I change things constantly in what I do. I can be successful doing uh, something one way with a certain piece of equipment. And even though I'm successful that way, the next time I still want to do something different. Um, And so I love that. I'm not afraid to be alone. I like the solitude. I like being responsible for myself. You know, in those team aspects, you're kind of responsible for each other. And I do enjoy riding with people, but uh, I prefer to compete by myself. I have no distractions that way, but I love to tour with people and ride with people, but more in a fun fashion. Do you find, uh, it doesn't sound as if you have a great deal of time for, in inverted commas, real normal life, but do you find quotidian life boring? Um, kind of. I've, I've never been a traditional life liver uh, as, as far as being like, oh yeah, you must uh, you know, grow up, find a career, get a job, get a house, get married, have kids. Like I've, I've kind of always objected to that a little bit and thought there was another way to enjoy life, another way to live. And so, yeah, I do, when I don't have a lot going on within the bicycle world of mine, I kind of feel a bit bored and lost unless I do have uh, more focus. Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever, I'm fascinated by the mental aspect of this, because again, I I know that you teach and give talks about the the mental qualities needed and you've you've mentioned on your website about managing expectations and achieving greatness 
um, and especially maintaining positivity, all of which I find absolutely fascinating and I think is very under talked about in sports. Um, do, do you ever have self-doubt? Uh, no, actually. Um, maybe a small question, though, but I, I try to be confident in my abilities through my experiences but not cocky. And there's a fine line there because you need to believe in yourself, but you can't be so proud that it, that it is being cocky. So yeah, it's, it's a mindset, all of this long distance endurance racing and what it takes. I mean, I describe an event as being physical the first day. And then after that, you're like kind of you, whatever you tell your mind is what your body will do. And so that, that physical part is kind of now gone because now you're relying on your mind to tell your body. And then a lot of it just becomes management. And uh, it's, it's hard to stay focused uh, all the time, but um, there's ways to do that. And I, I truly believe the bigger part of all of this is definitely the mind power that it takes. And for me, it's like the longer, the better, because it does take the longer it is, the more powerful minds you need. You know, we can grunt out things for a day or two or three days. We might be able to hide a certain piece of baggage or something that's bothering us. We might be able to hide that for a couple of days, but that stuff is going to come out and you're going to break down after a week of being on the trail or something. So it's a fun thing for me to talk about the mental aspect. And it's also a fun place for me to explore within myself. And I always say, like, I'm always trying to look to push my limits further and further, which is kind of awesome, but it's kind of scary at the same time. But I'm not afraid to go there. I think most people are afraid or fear going to a place they haven't been before because it's unfamiliar. But just having that open mind, uh, I think will help people reach that. And then you see what you're really made of and what you can achieve. And we could do a lot more than we think we can. I find that in inspirational. You're so right. And so many things pass through my head, not least of which in the health service, certainly there's been incredible studies about the power of mental strength overcoming physical illness. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating topic. How then do you manage expectations and how does that sit alongside the will to compete and the desire to succeed? Yeah, I mean, expectations, my very first one is um, really low. Like I just want to finish. So that's my number one expectation is finishing. And then from there, if you finish, then you have the opportunity to do well. And then if you're doing well, then you have the opportunity to possibly, I don't know, like place well, win, maybe set a record. There's, there's a, all those other things have to take place first before you reach that bottom line. And so I'll do anything to finish because that's most important to me. And having setbacks is actually an okay, good thing because it challenges you to get through them. And then when you finish, it's like it feels that much more powerful and that much more successful. Like if I have a lot of problems or things to confront during an event, I can appreciate that finish more than having zero problems and winning. So it's a, it's a different mindset. Um, I see a lot of people that have high expectations from the start. That's their first goal. And then they cave, quit. They don't finish because they had a obstacle. And that obstacle broke them down and then they quit and they never even gave them the chance to finish to see what they ended up doing. I don't know if that can actually be taught or if that's just something to talk about and, and let people realize. And then I think that just comes through experience. I just love the uh, being positive all the time. And I think that alone will do a lot for somebody. 
Does that mean you don't have a race plan ever when you go into these things? Never. I've never built a spreadsheet in my life. I've never looked at people's uh, split times, even for events that I've done multiple times. I've never, ever created a chart or a timeline. I like to describe myself as coming prepared in an event with the flexibility of doing anything as I move. And then all along the way, from the very start of that event, I am strategizing and thinking about the race as I go, because plans are usually thrown out the door within the first six hours of the event. So, and then also I think building a plan puts pressure on people and then you're building early expectations. And when they're not met, you immediately are down on yourself. So I just want to show up as prepared as possible. That's how I spend my time planning. I prepare, don't plan. And you must have now got it down to a fine art in terms of your kit and your diet. Uh, do, do you know what you're going to eat or what are your plans for the Silk Road? You know, that's that's probably about uh, the only thing I've been thinking about. And um, I'm a pretty flexible, easy person when it comes to eating and things. And I also know what I can get away with as far as how I can get away with how little I can get away with for a long distance. So I kind of like this aspect where maybe food can be an issue. I, I actually want it to be an issue. And honestly, I'm just starting now to think about the event, which I just seen as seven weeks away. And so um, I'm just looking at this stuff now. And uh, we're all survivalists and we really only need water to survive for, for days and weeks on end. So I can like kind of look at the extreme end and I, I know I'm not going to like die because I didn't get enough food because I know there's water. And and what's worst case scenario? You're a day without food. You know, that, do, that doesn't scare me, I guess. Does your wife, who is also taking part, have a similar attitude to you? She understands and has similar, but she performs different. Her goals probably aren't as lofty as mine. She's not as driven as I am. She's, uh, you know, she's doing it with a uh, with a friend of ours, so with a teammate, and then right there, dynamics immediately change. So uh, her preparation uh, will be much different than mine, and her uh, the way she performs in the event and executes it will be different than mine. But fantastic to have a degree of shared experience and to have tales to tell afterwards when you meet up. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't been really uh, this excited for an event in a very long time. And that alone is really exciting for me. Fantastic. And is this the first time uh, in Central Asia for you? It is. It is. And I love to travel. And so it just all of this just like makes me smile and gives me the chills because it's all just really exciting. And, um, you know, I, I hope we don't get that much information. I know there's been talk about people pre-riding. I hope none of that happens because I think uh, we don't really get the opportunity to have such a pure adventure that much anymore, especially in, in, in the in the state of uh, kind of bikepacking we're in. And so this is just one of those rare opportunities. And uh, I'm really looking to, uh, I'm really just looking forward to it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, uh, we're going to do a little quick fire round. <laughs> um Name the four countries that border Kyrgyzstan. Oh my gosh. You're <laughs> killing me here. Why do you have to do that? Uh, Is that a pass? 
Yeah, that depends. I know China's there. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Um, what is Kumis? Uh, something, the spirit of the mountains. I don't know. It is fermented yak's milk. Oh, I should have known. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be very familiar with it by the end. <laughs> oh, that's totally fine by me. I look forward to having some. <laughs> and the last question, how do you say hello in Kyrgyz? Uh, I raise my hand. That that will do. Or salam. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I love your attitude and um, it's given me a lot to think about as well in my approach to to sport. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. And uh, I'll, what do we say? See you in Kyrgyzstan? <laughs> yeah, we say rahmat and um, good luck. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Silk Road Mountain Race. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you also to our guests for taking part and a huge thanks to Bjorn Westra, our editor, for doing so much work to pull it all together. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the race, have a look at the website, silkroadmountainrace.cc and also see the show notes. You can follow the race on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks very much for listening and we hope to have you along for the next episode. Mm-hmm.